All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to the DFO Rundown, episode 81. The Miro Shatan, or maybe Phil Kessel. Is Phil Kessel a Hall of Famer? That'd be a great question for another day. Uh, DFO Rundown, I'm Jason Greger alongside Frank Saravalli. Frank, how you doing? The answer is no. No Phil for Kessel Phil the Thrill. not a Hall of Famer. Okay. All right. Um, I know it's funny though. You, you look at his numbers that I'm in 15 years, 20 years, I wonder, but it'll definitely be difficult. No question. No um, individual what? trophies, no all end of year, all-star teams. Yes. Two Stanley cups, two great playoff runs, but his know. best, his best season is 92 points. I don't know. A couple in the eighties, but he doesn't, yeah. doesn't do it for me. Never hit 40 goals. I don't know. Uh, for a decade, he was the sixth highest scorer in the league for 10 years. So that's the only reason why I thought maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, possible. I just, I don't see it. Uh, one guy who I think I'm, I'm pretty confident, Frank, the, like, I know this is going out on a limb, but I think Connor McDavid will be a hall of famer when, uh, when it's all said and done. Um, he the could not play is... another game <laughs> and he would be inducted into the hall of fame tomorrow. The, the fun question people are having is, which of his November goals is better, Rangers or the one last night against the Jets? I actually like the one against the Jets better 
bigger moment. Uh, it felt like in, in quick response, what was it? 28 seconds after the Jets scored to, to open a, a scoreless game. And then I think the gaps, it was, it was much closer and tighter against the Jets. And I think the shot itself was a little prettier. So I know everyone to this point has said Rangers taking on four guys instead of three, but I, I just think the moment, the quick response, um, I don't know. I just like the one against the Jets a, a tad bit better. Yeah, well, they're both fantastic. And I think the moment's the key thing because both were game-tying goals um, You know, in, in a game that I'll say this, man, as good of a goal as McDavid scored last night, that wasn't even really the story of the game. The story of the game is rookie Stuart Skinner, Skinner stopping yeah. 46 shots going up against Connor Hellebuck, basically save for save. And and now I assume he's going to start. Uh, well, I'm pretty confident he's starting tomorrow against the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. And, you know, Frank, we were talking earlier on the show, uh, on the pod earlier in the year, uh, the last 10 Stanley Cup winners all had their goaltender who was developed internally. All came from within. And the last one would be Tim Thomas. And even Tim Thomas, when you look at his strange career, really the only team that developed him as an NHL organization was Boston. And they had him in their minor system for two and a half years. So it's pretty clear you need that guy. I'm not saying Stuart Skinner's a lock to be a goalie of the future, but it gives Oiler fans hope and belief that maybe in the next few years, they might have found their goalie from within. Yeah, and I just like the emotion of it, getting a start in his hometown for the first time with fans. Uh, his family in the building, you see them before the game. I don't know that, that means something to these guys. And then to go, as you said, save for save against Hellebuck, a couple really big stops in the first period for the Oilers to help settle things down. And I don't know who knows what they have, but I, you know, that's sort of the only positional checkbox the Oilers are really looking at in terms of, you know, mapping out their next five years is who's going to be their goaltender. And if he answers or checks that box, well, they're in a much better spot. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, you know what? That was a 0-0 game for a long time, Frank, and I'm a huge proponent of offense. That might have been the most exciting 0-0 game I've seen live in a long, long time. Like, Hellebuck and Skinner both made – like, there was some really good chances. It wasn't like it was a snore fest where some 0-0 games where there's nothing happening. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot happening in that one, including McDavid, after his goal, gets a double minor for high stick in the 40 <laughs> seconds remaining in the game, and uh, the order's penalty kill have to kill it off, which is a little bit tougher in overtime when it's four-on-three and there's more space. Most penalty killers hate four-on-three. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That double minor certainly hurt. Um, I don't know. I mean, you're right. I, I actually sometimes root for a game like that. Yes. I love the six, four game, but I also love a, a, you know, a, a tit for tat, you know, big save against big save, you know, you get a chance, you get a chance. How does this team handle their power play? If you get another opportunity, how do you do yours? I mean, it's just, I like a, a tight game like that. Sometimes it, it kind of felt like, it was only mid-November, but it felt like a playoff-style atmosphere. And as I watched that game, Frank, I know you picked the Jets. Like, the Jets look good. They're very deep. They're, they're top three lines. I think they'll probably maybe want to add some depth on their fourth line. I know they're missing Paul Stastny. They're only playing. They're only carrying 22 players right now and really 21 on this road trip because Stastny's at home. They're so tight against the cap. But to me, the biggest difference for the Jets – Nate Schmidt and Brennan Dillon have really filled out their defense core. And when you look at the struggles to the west of the Jets in Vancouver, where they had Schmidt, and then you see what Schmidt's doing in, in, uh, in Winnipeg, whew, I could see why uh, uh, Canucks Army is a little upset right now. I've been saying it the whole time, all summer. 
two sneaky, sneaky good acquisitions. And that's the hardest part for Winnipeg is that you, you're not going to be able to go sign guys unless you way overpay. If you're Kevin Shovel Day off in the Jets, because you're in Winnipeg, you have to trade for these guys. And so to take a disgruntled player out of Vancouver, Nate Schmidt, who wanted to be back in the U.S., and convince him to come after a couple attempts. They had gotten close, and, and the deal was actually scuttled by Schmidt at first. Then to go back and convince him to come there, get out of Van. And Brendan Dillon has been a, a fan favorite on almost every team that he's yes. played on, in addition to the guys on his own blue line clamoring to play for him. So, um, you know, I, I've liked that team all along. I, I still I don't really understand why they were 40 to 1 to start the year. Stanley Cup odds, I threw a few bucks on the Jets. Um, you know, even looking at everything about the Jets with with odds to me was off the entire year. Uh, I think their over-under was 92. Like, it was like, this is, it was easy money. Uh, you speak of trades. So those two trades have worked out. So is Pierre-Luc Dubois. He looks like the player they thought they'd get, man. He He's aggressive. He's engaged. He's got eight goals. You know, him and Dreisaitl for two straight games battled. Like, I know Leon Dreisaitl, the league's leading point getter, didn't get a point last night. That might have been his best game. Like you, the he basically him and Nugent Hopkins are the two forwards on the four on three in overtime. He kills. There's not many elite offensive guys, Frank, that are killing penalties as often as Drysaddle. But last night, the orders really needed to to batten down the hatches five on five. And I know the shots were a lot, but the the quality chances they were much more engaged than they have been defensively. And I'll see you know what they do against now. Suddenly, Frank, a Chicago team that can play defense. Yeah, uh, you harped on that the whole time. Defensive zone play under Jeremy Colleton was garbage. You'd been saying it, go back to last season, maybe even before that. Derek King comes in, a few adjustments, all of a sudden, oh, hey, Marc-Andre Fleury, you you didn't forget how to play goalie. Vezina winner, 940 in his last three games. I mean, it's um, it's it's remarkable to see how quick they've turned things around. My question is, is it too late and and how much of what they've done in these four games is sustainable in the long term yeah fair fair question on both uh we have rick the rocket talkit coming up on the pod today of course uh currently working with uh tnt longtime nhler uh 12 years as an assistant or an nhl head coach uh, he's gonna have some beauty stories uh, i know frank you know him from uh, from philadelphia quite well he was just in philly man i was stunned that um uh, Tockett had the most penalty minutes all time on, on an organization that was the Broad Street Bullies, and he only played there for eight years. It's like a legit claim to fame. Like, it's an awesome trivia <laughs> question, too. Like, I am the Flyers' all-time leader in penalty minutes. Like, that's insane. Oh, the, I'm guessing Flyer fans love him even more. Like, they like their goal scores, but Flyer fans are a pretty aggressive group. I'm guessing Tockett is one of the fan favorites. Yes, no doubt. Uh, and that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. He's like, he had two separate stints with the team. Uh, when he came back, it was sort of the twilight of his career the last few years. And, you know, they just loved having him around. He's just a, a guy that uh, older, you know, in his career, younger in his career, just everyone in Philly loved and appreciated Rick Tockett. And it is funny, though, all of his real on ice success came on the other side of the state in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. One cup as a player, two cups as an assistant coach. And I think if you, you know, we'll ask him the question, but I, I think if he had to pick and you know which one is home, it's he loves Philly, but it's probably Pittsburgh. 
Yeah, I guess when you got three cups to to go home to there, it might make a little bit of difference. Uh, let's bring in Tyler Uremchuk because we're going to keep uh, talking a little bit longer maybe for uh, buy or sell. Ty, how you doing? I am fantastic here, and I am ready to jump into buy or sell. It's brought to you by our friends over at DoorDash where you can use the promo code RUNDOWNDD. gets you 25% off your first order and no delivery fees. Here's how we're going to run the first little bit here. I'm just going to throw a team out there, and you're going to tell me if you're buying or selling on their chances to make the playoffs. And we will start with the team whose record road trip is finally coming to an end. The New York Islanders will open up their new rink. I saw uh, they were playing a little game at practice the other day for who would get to be the first one to step on the ice when they finally got to skate there. But Islanders is a playoff team, buying or selling, Frank? Buying. Okay. To get through this road trip with a somewhat respectable record, it's November 20th, guys, tomorrow. That's their first home game. 38 days without a home game to start the season. That's really difficult. They've powered through still 50% playoff odds. According to moneypuck.com. I say they get in. Yeah, I'll buy now, but ask this question again in three weeks. I think the next three weeks are crucial for the Islanders. The Anaheim Ducks, it's a team that really looks like they're built from the back end out. I mean, Gibson, I like the look of their blue line. They've got some forwards, big bounce back year from Getzlav. Ducks is a playoff team, Gregor, buying or selling? Man, I knew this one was coming, and this is the the wild card for me. Vegas is starting to, you know, Vegas is heating up despite their injuries. So the, the question will be, will there be five teams in the Central better? Because I still think Edmonton, Calgary, and Vegas are better than Anaheim. I'm going to sell. Sorry, Duck fans. Oof. I think they'll miss. By a few points. Yeah, I'm going to sell as well. Um, as great of a story as they've been, all the things that they've dealt with this year and all that they've been through. And I, I just, I'm sorry. I, Ryan Getzlaff is a fantastic player. He's a way more interesting Hall of Fame debate for me than, than Phil Kessel. Um, I just don't, I don't think he can sustain the, the run that he's on. What happens to Troy Terry when his streak ends at 16 games now? Still motoring along. Where does he end up? Um, they've done it almost seemingly by a different player or person every night as well. Feels like a little bit of smoke and mirrors. And you look at the wild card. I don't know. Uh, I just think Vegas is going to be in that spot with Calgary and Edmonton as the three teams that are locks to get in. And I just think five teams from the central are going to be in. The fascinating part with the Ducks will be, you know, in they don't have the permanent GM. If they're like five points out at the deadline with all those pending UFAs, I wonder what they'll do. Uh, up next, we will go to Frank State, but we're going to talk about the Penguins. Uh, do you like their chances to make the playoffs? Buying or selling, Frank? I am selling. They were a great story to start. Yes, they're going to get Evgeny Malkin back at some point. I just don't know that they have the depth. They they had it to start, and you saw the contributions from those guys in the very beginning. I, I don't know that they can sustain what, what we originally saw from them in the first 10 days or two weeks of the season. Obviously, they've had some struggles since then. I am going to sell on the Penguins being in. Yeah, I, I didn't have them in at the start of the year, so I'll stick with that. So I will sell. Um, obviously, the caveat is when Malkin comes back and he can he ignite them. But I just yeah. that division's tough. It's it's really competitive. Carolina and Washington are locks right now. Philly's playing very well. Columbus has played better than I thought. I think the Islanders, we both agree, will will get their uh, game in gear. So I just don't know. I don't see how there's room. Let's go back to the West and specifically the Central Division. You guys talked about the Jets. I want to talk about the team that sits three points back of them, the Nashville Predators. You see Soros is having a great year. Will it be enough to get them into the big dance? Jason, you buying or selling? Uh, 
You know what? I honestly, I think I aired at the start of the season. I forgot how how bad of a start Nashville had last year yeah. and then were unreal to claw their way into the playoffs. And I was like, nah, they just made it. But then I, you know, I went back and I looked, I was like, man, they were really good for a long time. And now they've started out good again. They've got lots of depth. Uh, you know, Matt Duchesne and Granlin, I know there's no award for it, but man, if there was a bounce back player of the year, Matt Duchesne right now would be leading, I think in that category. So yeah. I like the Preds defense. You mentioned UC Saros. He's legit goaltender uh, i'm gonna i'm buying on the preds i think the preds are making it it's gonna be tight though man that division minnesota winnipeg the blues preds and colorado's like they're gonna wake up yeah, so, yeah. they already are yeah, yeah. So they've won three in a row six three and one in their last 10 colorado um i am gonna buy as well i think nashville gets the last playoff spot in the west so they have the very last wild card spot you know, there's going to, I think there's going to be five teams from the central Minnesota, Winnipeg, St. Louis, uh, Colorado, and Nashville. Those are my five. All right. And uh, for this last one here, changing it up a little bit, circling back to the Metro, the Blue Jackets and Devils, both. I mean, I don't think a lot of people had them being, you know, above 500 after the first month of the season. If you had to buy on one of those teams, the Devils or the Jackets, which one would you buy on Frank? Who's more legit? Ooh, that is a good question. I would buy on, I would buy on the devils. Um, I just think their young players are going to continue to grow and grow. Um, Columbus, I have some question marks about, you know, where this offense has come from. Um, they've got, you know, 48 goals on the year, puts them right up there near the top in terms of, um, you know, certainly even on the other end of the Atlantic, like who saw the, the Columbus Blue Jackets having as many goals this season in four fewer games as the Toronto Maple Leafs, for instance, hardly anyone. Um, I think New Jersey has more to give and I think they were just kind of starting to get rolling on the goalie front. So I'm going to take New Jersey. I'm actually going to go with the Columbus Blue Jackets because, uh, you know, like Patrick Laine's missed five games. And they're still scoring that many goals. You know, he's a point of game player, which I, I think he's he can sustain close to that. Uh, Oliver Bjorkstrand might be one of the most overlooked offensive guys in the league. He's, uh, you know, going back to his junior days, he's always been a big-time scorer. Um, no, Boone Jenner, obviously, nine goals in 14 games. That'll slow down. But I, I like Columbus. Jake Voracek is over a point per game. Like, yeah. Well, Jake's always been a good disher, Frank. And, and you know I, my, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. And I, I was the, one of those guys. I actually said one of my bold predictions, I think. Yes. Jake Voracek, north of 65 points. Take it to the bank. But he's not going to be at 85 points or 90 points, which is where he's on pace for yeah, well, I'm going to take the Blue Jackets because I actually think their offensive guys are a little bit older and a little bit more proven. I think there's a better chance that uh, they sustain. If I'm picking either one to finish higher, I'll go with the Blue Jackets. With David Putty staring at you over your shoulder, Gregor, you go against the New Jersey Devils. Very uh, bold. Hey, Dave. Dave, I'm a huge Seinfeld <laughs> fan. I, like, I'm not a big collector of stuff, but that yeah. Dave Putty, that's personalized too, man. He's an absolute beauty. So that's, that's awesome. uh, That is one of my fans. It's a good point by you to take it, but... Uh, does he, I'm a David Putty fan. I'm not a Devils fan. The Devils. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of uh, Buy or Sell brought to you by DoorDash. Frank, you brought, uh, Tyler brought up the Preds and the Ducks, and it looks like they could easily be on a collision course in different divisions for that eighth and final playoff spot. And it's really kind of fascinating uh, to look at it. Um, I want to quickly get, uh, we didn't touch on it, but the Minnesota Wild and just how well they're playing. 
And like they spanked Dallas uh, last night. And Dallas, it looked like they maybe had finally come around a little bit. But are, are you surprised at all by the Wild? And what do you think Bill Guerin's going to do at the deadline for that team, considering, you know, like the next few years, it's just, it's going to be painful with all the dead cap space. Well, that's what I was going to say is I'm not sure how much flexibility he really has. Like if he's taking on guys, they can't really have term. And I don't know. I think this team doesn't really need a whole lot. That I think is the story of the wild. They were one of the very best teams in the league last year. They took the Vegas Golden Knights to seven games, probably even should have won that series. Kaprizov this year has, he's back at right at a point per game after a four point game on Thursday night. Ryan Hartman has been a revelation, um, has found a home. I don't know. I, I got, there's a lot to like about this wild team and, and really how I think there's a quickness to their game that makes them tough to play against. And before we get to Rick talking, and I think this is fitting because, of course, Rick was in Arizona and then uh, and left. Um, I'm not sure how much of Jim Benning's press conference you watched, Frank, but when he was asked about Travis Green, he didn't give a no. A there real... was no vote of confidence. No. So uh, the owner is, is seemed you know gave Jim Benning one. Benning didn't give Green one. Uh, you know, maybe the, the he's not even deal. in a position to give one out. Is the point? Yeah. Well, that's fair. So do you think, like, do you think they allow Benning? to stay and make another coaching change or do they wipe both out at once? My guess would be if that's the path that he wants to go down, that it probably wouldn't end well for him, meaning Jim Benning. And I say that because Travis green just got a hard fought extension for way more dollars than he was making. And they, they went to the mat to get him that to pivot this quickly after that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, they're in a tough spot, and that press conference certainly did not no. increase anyone's confidence. No. I think uh, that's the thing is, like, everyone in that market was looking for some, I don't know if encouragement is the right word, but they were looking for confidence. They were looking for a projection of, hey, we got this. We've had an awful start. We know we didn't expect it, but we're going to turn it around, and here are the three reasons or ways we're going to do that i don't know i i'm not uh they're in a tough spot i don't even know how they dig out no it's proof there's some people that like to downplay the importance of special teams when you allow 19 frank this is not an error i'm not saying that because these numbers will blow people's minds in 10 games they've allowed 19 power play goals almost two per game their penalty kill is is sub 50 percent God, I was 50, no, it's 52.5 right now in their last 10 games. 52.5%, Frank. That's like my, uh, I think my, if you go, if you go physics. a shorter term, it's like over the last six or eight games, it's oh. sub 50. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's because they've allowed three, two, like, and in those 10 games, they've allowed two goals or more eight times. Like it is, I've never seen it. A, a uh, but it, this was, bad. this is, this shouldn't be a surprise in the sense, like I can remember going back to training camp reading Thomas Strance in the athletics saying, who's going to kill penalties for this team? How is this team set up on the, on the penalty kill? It was a point, a, a focal point for that team in the off season, or at least it should have been. Why was that not properly addressed? Why was the right side of your defense not properly addressed? And then you can get into, well, what's up with Elias Pettersson and why doesn't he look the same? 
Those are all important questions to ask. And then you can start talking about the coaching staff. You can talk about um, why that team rolled over in so many games. Like there's, there's lots of facets to why the Canucks are where they are. Yeah, well, it's funny about penalty kill because a lot of people thought the same thing about the orders because Larson and Bear, who are their two top right defensemen penalty killers, left. Josh Archibald, of course, out with myocarditis. Kara gone, uh, yet their penalty kill with all, a lot of new faces has done pretty well. Um, I, I watched their penalty kill. It's it's amazing to see a penalty kill with zero confidence. And right now, Frank, they got guys who aren't willing to get in the lanes properly. They don't block enough shots on the penalty kill, which in today's NHL, you just can't win. Mm-hmm. Let's get to... Let's get to our, our big guest today, Rick Tockett. Our next guest is the newest member of the Philadelphia Flyers Hall of Fame, the franchise's all-time leader in penalty minutes. His name is also on the Stanley Cup three times, once as a player with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then helped the Penguins to another two Stanley Cups as an assistant coach before moving on to spend the last four years behind the Arizona Coyotes bench and he's now an analyst with TNT and their studio show. Rick Tockett, welcome to the DFO Rundown. How are you doing, Rick? Thanks, Frank. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, so let's uh, let's start with your big honor this week. Um, yeah. Busy week for you going to Philly, uh, entering the Flyers Hall of Fame. You know, what was that experience like for you? A chance to, to spend some time with a, a lot of alumni from a lot of different generations and, and to be honored in a city that's, that's near and dear to your heart. Yeah, Frank, I got to tell you, it was uh, every time I get back to Philly, it brings back memories. But we had guys from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010, uh, guys like Dan Breer, Mo Gagne, Joe Watson, the oldest guy in the ice. So um, it's, it's, it's an instant brotherhood. You know, there's some guys I haven't seen in like a long time. You know, I haven't seen like a Lindsey Carson. I haven't seen the son of us in a long time. Uh, but when you all get back together and you're in that alumni room, you know, the stories go, everybody starts talking. It's uh, the instant memories. Um, and, you know, it's just that but the flyer bond, it just, it, it just comes back to you. Uh, so I got to say, it was just a terrific week for me. Uh, you know, Dave Scott uh, did a nice job. And um, just like I said, meeting all the guys was great. Yeah, Rick, the Flyers really seem to do a great job with their alumni. So my next question, you know, I, I had a chance to, to work with you and do TV you know, 10 plus years yeah. ago now, now you're back uh, on the dark side uh, behind <laughs> the camera or in front of the camera. Um, what's it, what's it like working with the guys on TNT? It seems like it's a lot of fun. Um, what's it been like for you being back in the media and, and not being behind a bench? Yeah, Frank, I'll tell you, like, um, you know, I had some tough decisions to make I had a couple opportunities to hook on with some teams. And I had that TNT uh, do a, t- I did a test, right. And, when I met instantly the, the the group there, how they wanted to do things, uh, they wanted how that what they felt the best way for a hockey show, um, and then the guys that were going to do it, they called me back said we'd like to get on the panel. I said yeah, let's go for it. I, I really I'm actually enjoying it. Um, there's a lot of goofiness going on, and I think it's great. I think uh, they, they like what we're doing, um, and the chemistry is great with the guys, you know, Liam and AC and Biz and, and Wayne. Rick, you, you know, you mentioned the goofy side of it and, and TNT's had a lot of success with that, of course, in the NBA and hockey for the longest time has maybe been a little stiff. Um, you've been in, you know, hockey as a player since 85. And then of course, as a coach for over 12 seasons, an NHL coach and assistant coach, does hockey need to loosen up a bit at times? 
Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, we're always trying to get to the, you know, you want to, you know, we want to catch football and baseball and, and basketball. And I think sometimes, and I think that's just a lot of us hockey players, you know, and I, I mean, listen, I was the same way early in my career, you know, you're very straight to the vest and, you know, it's, you know, you, you know, you, you try not to give too much, you know, the standard answers, you know, the, the, the whole hockey cliches, but I think you're starting to see more personalities of the guys. Um, I really enjoy talking to guys actually in warm up. At first, I didn't think guys would like that. You know, they put the, uh, the mic on. We actually did Connor McDavid there a couple of weeks ago, and he kind of laughed a little bit. So, and uh, I, I think, you know, we need more of that, you know, uh, especially um, the players. I mean, we got to market those guys. Um, and, it, and it's okay. You know, you can't always be guarded. You know, you look at Wayne. Wayne's always Mr. Very, you know, the master of hockey. But he's kind of loosened up, and he, you know, we're he, we're we're jabbing him. So I think people like that. It's almost like a dressing room uh, yeah. kind of, um, you know, kind of atmosphere. Now you mentioned you had some opportunities. You've been a head coach twice in the NHL, and then of course, you know, Frank outlined your success as an assistant coach. I've talked to a lot of coaches, and they feel like you know what, my personality. I'm a head coach. Some are like, you know what, I think I'm an assistant now. You've done both. Ideally, do you view yourself more as a head coach? Than an assistant moving forward? Yeah, I do. I, I, I you know, I like the decision making. I like the, the, the I like the uh, round table with your, your assistant coaches and, and trying to devise a system or, or, or ways of teaching better or practicing better. So I like that. I'm a little bit, especially the last, you know, t- being a taste, you know, being in Arizona four years. Um, yeah, I want to be head coach. So, um, you know, I went, I had a couple of, went deep on a couple of interviews and I didn't get the job and I, three or four, uh, four teams offered me a job as an assistant or associate coach. Um, and there, there was a tough decision. Um, but like I said, I, I, you know, sometimes it's, I mean, sometimes it's good to take a year off. Or, well, I'm not, who knows if I'm ever, I'm ever going to get back, back in, I'm not going to take that for granted, but um, to reinvent yourself, I think coaches have to reinvent themselves. You, you can get stale. Is there new ways to approach a player? Is there new ways to practice than the standard way of practicing? Is there new systems out there? So I think, taking a step back, looking at different ways of doing things might be good for me. Do you miss coaching Rick now that you're on the media side? Yeah. I mean, listen, I watch a lot of games. Uh, I talked to Craig Ruby a lot, Travis Green, uh, John Cooper every once in a while. And, you know, when they talk to you, you know, you get the fire, you know, you're watching the team and you, you know, you wish you were that battle. Of course I do. Um, but um, I also enjoy this. This is really, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. I didn't know I'd enjoy it this much. And I think that's something that, and I want to get better at it. I think, you know, I'm still right, but I still want to get better at that. What do you think you learned about yourself as a head coach and in terms of finding some of that voice, like you're, you know, you're a pretty easy guy to get along with. And I'm sure being in that assistant coach role, you also know the conversation and what it's like to be in that position when you're the head guy to be inclusive in terms of everyone's opinion, but in terms of finding your own voice transitioning from being an assistant to then being the decision maker, what was that process like for you in Arizona? And, and how do you think you, you got better at it as the years went by? For me, it's like blocking the outside noise. That's really important for a head coach. I know there's a couple of coaches right now. Uh, there's a lot of outside noise, right? And they're very good coaches. And you just got, you just got to block it out. You got to have conviction in the way your coach, the way you approach the game and the way you deal with players. And um, that's one thing I really learned in Arizona. I mean, there was a lot of, outside noise you know there's a lot of ownership there's two ownership changes there's a couple of gm changes um you know bankruptcy like money things like there's a lot of but the one thing i was most proud of and i get the players a lot of credit is once they they were in the locker room they kept that outside noise out and i think that helped me 
and you know, hopefully I get another gig where I can, I can even be better at uh, still being able to coach without, you know, worrying about the outside noise. Because, you know, sometimes that can really affect the coach, you know, when you hear stuff outside and, and maybe you coach different because you hear that noise. Rick, you are a highly competitive player. I'm assuming you're the same as a head coach. Uh, you know, in Arizona, you talked about all the ownership changes. A at times, I think if we're being honest, you know, you you, you were uh, you were pushing a boulder up a mountain, uh, you know, to try to ice a competitive team there with, in a salary cap era. When, when you're interviewed for other jobs, is, is would there ever be a position where you'd say, you know what? I just don't think I want to even go down the road of an interview. Like having so much NHL experience is... Is there a part of you that's like, it's got to be a good fit before I even throw my name in the hat? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound arrogant, guys, because you know, I did the Tampa thing and, you know, obviously there's a, it wasn't very solid there. And then obviously Arizona was more of a project. And, um, and I thought we were moving in the right direction. Um, so would I like to be a little more established team? Uh, maybe a team that has a better chance of, of uh, yeah, I'd rather have more pressure. You know, I'd rather have a team that's really good and it's pressure for me to take this team to the next level. Um, yeah, if, if I could, I would like that kind of situation. So, uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say arrogant where I'm going to pick and choose, but yeah, I would like to enjoy a team that really has a little bit more, you know, uh, established to, to win. Yes, for sure. Rick, there's not a lot of players who have scored 440 goals, you know, almost a thousand points in the NHL who are head coaches. Like you are a really skilled guy and, and, and no disrespect to a lot of other coaches, but a lot of the other guys weren't necessarily highly skilled. Um, do you feel then you can relate more to the skilled guy because you were a pretty skilled player? Is, is that a part of coaching? And, and to understand that skilled guys are just a little bit different in what they need. Yeah, I, I think I've worn every hat, right? I was a first liner, second, third, fourth liner. I didn't dress some games early in my career. Um, you know, I played every the tough guy role. So I kind of know how, I, I think I know how guys feel. You know, I know that that that, that top player of yours doesn't, he hasn't scored in three games, no points in three games, the press is on him. You know, you might want to get him out there on an empty net, try to get him that free assist. And Adam Oates was, uh, used to tell me all the time, you don't know how huge it is to get that guy that assist, even though it's a cheap one or it's a whatever kind of, it loosens the guy up. And I, and I understand, or a fourth line guy that maybe hasn't played that much, you know, go out the ice a little early with him uh, the day before and, and talk about his game and try to make him feel really important. I think that's important. You got to touch each player. It just can't be the top guys or the, uh, the bottom guys. It's got to be a collective. And I just think that's a, that's a really something I think I'm pretty good at is being able to know that, everybody's role and how important it is and make sure that you make the guy feel important. Um, and I, that's something that, that I've learned from a lot of coaches and players. When you look at, um, and, and for fun here, Rick, uh, because uh, you, you didn't get to a lot of highly skilled guys at the time. You had a young Stamkos in, in Tampa Bay, yeah. but for, for fun, what, if you were coaching Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle right now, how would you approach it? How would you challenge those two guys who have been the most dominant offensive players in the NHL and they're on the same team? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I, I love sports history. I love uh, the documentaries and I, you know, that last dance. And, you know, when Phil Jackson went in with Michael Jordan, how about that one? You know, Michael Jordan was scoring 60 points a game and they just couldn't, you know, they'd lose in the first round. They just couldn't get out. And he said, listen, we got to, we got to do a different system. You know, we got to get more people involved. We got to, you know, we, we got to get a different approach, maybe in defense. You know, and Michael Jordan still scored. He had still got his points, but he was scoring 30, 40 points and they're winning championships. Now, I don't know if that's the same correlation, but 
I, I think uh, for me, I, I know people want Connor McDavid to get 170 points and all that, and they're talking about it. I mean, to me, just being a good, like a, a star player, which he is, he's, I love, I mean, I, I pay to it, like whatever you have to pay to watch this guy play. Um, but I think in a seven game series, you know, you got to make sure that you play a two way game. And I'm not saying he's not, or Leon Dreisaitl. I think it's really important that sometimes there's some games where you just might have to lock it down and try to win a game one nothing. Playoffs, if you're going to win a Stanley Cup, and you can ask John Cooper, you can ask Mike Sullivan or whatever, you have to win some games in those, you know, 20 something games you play to, to win a Stanley Cup. You got to win a game two to one, and your star players have to play really good two way hockey for you if you want to win a Stanley Cup. Talk, was that a compliment or a shot that Jason called you a skill guy knowing that you had 3,000 penalty minutes? Man, he, I tell you what, that's, he's my new, my, I'm, I'm a fan of his now. People like to say I used to butcher the puck up a lot, but uh, but I did what I did. What I did is and it's funny. I, I was with Mike Keenan here this uh, last couple of days, and the one thing Mike told me in my third year, he said, "You got to start developing a skill game. You know, you know, you can't just you know if you are you're, if you're going to be a checker in your whole career, that's fine. But if you want more ice time stuff, so I went home and I shot a lot of pucks, worked on my game like a lot of guys do. They have skill coaches now. Back then, I kind of had my own. I did my own little thing, but I, I shot a lot of pucks and worked worked a lot of hand skills back in the day." So as you're now taking this year in between and doing media, you mentioned that you're talking to some of the other coaches and, and staying up in the conversation. And I, I, I know how tight you are with Craig Berube. What are those conversations like? Like, what are you looking for aside from being a sounding board to them whenever they need you um, and to rely on? What are like what are, when you're watching a game, what are you looking at? Yeah, well, first we talked to Chief, and I'll talk about that they worked on some diesel coverage that, that maybe he hasn't liked his team the way they played last couple of games, and they worked on a couple of drills. And he'll ask me, "Hey, what do you think of these drills?" Or have you, you know, we bounce uh, ideas off each other. And then if I watch the Blues game, I'll watch you know I'll watch some of the game, and I'll, I'll see if what he was they did in practice has translated into the game. Um, I love that, and I say, "Yeah." Chief was telling me they were they were talking about doubling up on a little quicker and. They, they had a drill where they were doubling up, and then you watch the game. They go, man, St. Louis is really playing good, you know, defense. They're getting the puck. Uh, they're, uh, um, they're stopping a cycle, and they're getting the puck back. So I love that stuff, right? So you just, as a, as a coach that's on the sidelines, you're looking at which, what he's doing uh, the day before transpires in the game. And then we'll talk about it down, you know, a couple of days from now, I'll go, hey, Chief, I love that drill. It worked in the game. Or if maybe it doesn't, you scrap the drill. So that's the conversations we have. So when you, you mentioned the communication factor and, and yeah. trying to, you know, make sure you're talking to all your guys, not just the top end guys, how much of that has changed and how, how do you balance that part of the job where you're almost like a CEO in some ways where you, yeah. you're managing a lot of people at once with the X's and O's part of it that you just mentioned, like, you know, you've got your hand on a lot of different levers and controls here. Mm -hmm. Is that communication part of it different than it was for you on your first go around in Tampa 10, 12, 14 years ago? Or is it, you know, is it the same now? Yeah, it's, it's evolved. Uh, as a player, when I communicate with coach, so when I was a coach in Tampa until now, it, it's really evolved. You really have to be, I, and listen, we're not, we're not psychologists. You know, we, we, we try to be um, uh, when you talk to a player, but to me, um, you got to know the, the player's strengths and weaknesses in their mind too. You know, some players are very, you know, they don't like being yelled at or they don't like being talked down to. And some players uh, like to not say much when you talk to them and they like to listen to you. So you got to, you got to know all that stuff before you talk to a player. It's all computerized in your head. 
you know, the length of a meeting. There's some guys that get very nervous if you talk more than five minutes. So, I mean, I write notes sometimes, and I know some guys in Arizona, I'd say, okay, if I'm going to be with somebody, hey, this guy, I know he gets a little nervous. So I'll try to talk about something other than hockey the first two minutes, maybe to loosen them up. These are little things that I never did 14 years ago, or I never did when I was a player, the coach never did for me. I just think that it's important that you communicate with the player. And like I've said, I don't know, I've said in many interviews, you got to be a partner with the player. It's the dictatorship or it's my way, the highway coach, you're not going to survive. You got to, you have to get the player involved in your decision-making as simple as, Hey, what time do you want the bus to leave to, Hey, on this four check, should we play the F3 a little wider or should we play them down the dots? These are questions I like asking a player or a group of players to get their feedback. And I think it goes a long way uh, throughout the year. Rick, you played right up until 2001 to uh, 14 games. At what stage, maybe, and I don't know if it ever happened, were you in your career when you started thinking, hmm, maybe I want to coach? Did, did somebody tell you you might be good at it? Did you just decide on yourself, I want to be a coach? How did you get into coaching? When, when did the light bulb turn on for you that that was an option? Yeah, so when I retired, um, you know, I just wanted to, you know, just take a break, you know, and just do nothing. And I was golfing and I, whatever. And that, that lasts maybe three weeks. I'm a very competitive, I, I need to, I'm a structured guy. And I knew if I, whatever I do, I, I'll get in trouble if I don't, you know, I need something structured. You know, you got to remember my whole life, 10 o'clock bus, eat at 12 o'clock, go to sleep. You got this, everything is structured. When they take that away from you, you know, now it's like, okay, I shouldn't say they take it away when you're done. Um, you know, you got a lot of time on your hands. So how are you going to use it? So I was lucky Pierre Lacroix called me. It was around Christmas time. Um, Bob Hartley got uh, fired by the uh, Colorado, Tony Granado took over. And they called me out of the blue. And he said, hey, would you like to come and uh, coach as an assistant coach? And I think it was a couple of months in. And I said, wow. And I said, you know what? I like this. I'm going to try it. So um, I, have to, I owe a lot to uh, Pierre Lacroix, who's a great man, and rest in peace. He got me started. And I really enjoyed coaching. And I was Colorado Avalanche. So where, where was your connection to Pierre Lacroix? I don't think you played on yeah. any of his teams. Like how, how did he just call you out of the blue? And then second to that, what was the biggest learning curve to suddenly being an assistant coach? Yeah. So Tony, I played with Tony Granado. So I think Tony might've spoken okay. to Pierre and then Pierre called me and, and said, uh, so Pierre, he's spearheaded, but I think Tony started the ball rolling. Um, it was like going into it and Peter Forsberg, Joe Sackett, Alex Tangay. Adam Foot, Milan Hayduke. I mean, we had uh, Joe, like, I think I said Joe said, we had the who's who. We had uh, Patrick Bois. So while I went in there, I was like, you know, I just was removed. I played against these guys. They knew who I am. And I kind of weeded my, I came in slow. I mean, I didn't, I, I came in slow and uh, I ran the power play there. And that was just basically throw the puck on the ice, boys take over. I don't know <laughs> what, what, I can't remember the percentage, but we had a great power play. So that was kind of my introduction as assistant coach. Um, but I enjoyed it. I uh, really learned a lot from those guys. I mean, you get to coach high-end players like that, like I did in Pittsburgh with uh, Sidney Crosby. You learn a lot from those guys. Well, how did Sid rub off on you and maybe vice versa? Yeah, Sid, uh, I really enjoyed my time with Sid. He, um, he, he loves the game so much, and he's always trying to stretch it. You know, he's always, he always wants to get better. He knows that, hey, people are pushing him. He's getting, you know – you know, I don't know, what is it, uh, you know, father time's coming, but he's still got a lot of good years left, so he's training different. Is there different systems? Is there better face-off play? So we would talk about this stuff, you know, and I, I think I've shared stories where at 9 o'clock at night, he texts me, hey, did you see San Jose's 
power play, uh, face-off play. And I go, actually, I'm at dinner. I haven't, but I'll tell you what, I better know it at nine o'clock the next morning when he comes to my office because he'll go, did you see it? And, uh, you know, so obviously I'm there early and I'll get that face-off play and we'll discuss it. So he just made me a better coach because I thought differently sometimes on the way, on, on the game and also on a way to coach, you know, and, and how to, you know, to deal with players. And uh, Sid was very good at that. So a lot of those players were really good that helped me, uh, you know, learn about coaching. A lot of those guys in that team. You know, it, it's funny. You mentioned your relationship with Sid, um, you know, and I, I just can't help but think knowing you a little bit, just your relationship with a lot of different guys around the league and you've been in the game so long, but some of your closest friends are like literally the who's who list Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, like on and on and on like kid from Scarborough. If you had told you that, I don't know, however many years ago, 20, 30, 40 years ago, would you have believed it? Like what, like you ever pinch yourself in terms of your life sometimes? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed. I mean, you know, been on, you know, you go on golf trips with Mary Lemieux and uh, for years, and you know, Wayne Gretzky, you're going to uh, family vacations. And um, I'm, I'm very blessed to be really close to those guys. Um, they know my personality. I know their personality. Um, I love hanging around those guys because they're, they're star, they're superstars. They're, they're the lead of the lead. They're Mount Rushmore guys, but they don't act that way. They don't have a, they don't have the big group around them. They don't need, you know, constant, uh, you know, some, some superstars need to be constantly telling they're great. They don't need that. Um, and I learned a lot from them. I learned a lot about humility, uh, being humble, um, you know, the, the game on, on the way they approach the game. And uh, the one thing I always know is those guys, no matter how hot it is and the pressure is, they stay cool. You know, they don't, I've never seen those guys get nervous. And I've been with those guys in some tense moments. And to see those guys, you know, um, you know, not bat an eye and just be the same as they always are. That's to me, is very special. And I, I noticed that when I, especially being with those guys. You're one of the few guys, Rick, uh, you know, you played with Gretzky, you played with Yager, you played with Lemieux, you coach Crosby. Like those are some of the, the greatest yeah. ones F- from a playing standpoint. When you went from Philly to Pittsburgh, like that's a huge, that's one of the biggest rivalries in hockey. Was it at all uncomfortable walking into the Penguins locker room the first time when you got traded to them in that cup run? And uh, was there anyone that you had to mend fences with? Yeah, so I think a week before I, I fought Troy Loney, I broke his nose, kind of beat him up pretty bad. And and I'll be honest, so we used to play the Penguins. You know, I was a pain in the ass of those guys. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I tried to, you know, I, was, I wasn't the great, you know, the fans hated me there and uh, – when I walked in that locker room, uh, I remember Kevin Stevens took me and Jay Caulfield and I, I, I went, brought me to their house and I had pregame meal actually with their wives. So I sit there and it was just, that was the first time I got off the plane. I played that night and I knew, and that when I walked in and I met Mario, I think Mario was a big part of that too, the trade, but he, uh, it was almost like, you know, he kind of somewhat took the shackle off me. He, this guy's okay now. Like, you know, he's not the, the devil anymore he's with us now so i think uh you know that that usually when a guy gets traded usually that happens guys usually warm and welcome and i've heard some stories some guys i've been some teams where guys you know, it takes you really a lot while to get the chemistry or a guy to invite you to dinner but those guys right away and i think those guys knew they had a chance to win a cup and and when i got there i was like man i think we're at the time we're like 500 and i was like i can't believe this team was 500 they had some problems they won a the cup before 
And then all of a sudden it was just, you know, those guys just took off and it was just, I just followed their lead. Well, it's interesting. The two guys that took you for dinner, Kevin Stevens, kind of a mirror of you power forward. And then Jay Caulfield, two of their <laughs> toughest guys. So were you guys sitting over dinner? What were you talking about? Okay. Now we don't have to fight each other. Are you talking fight <laughs> stories? What's going on at dinner? Yeah, I know. Well, you know what? Uh, you know, it's more like small talk because you know, you, you don't really have the story other than the stories in the game. Like I remember Kevin Stevens was telling the story. They were beating a seven, six, nothing. And, uh, Pittsburgh started to start to come on here because, you know, the fighters used to abuse them all the time. And uh, Dave Brown, who oh. toughest guy I've ever played with, you know, he played in Edmonton, tough as nails and oh. obviously flyers killer. He went over their bench and told those guys, he looked at Kevin Stevens. I think Kevin had three goals. He said, if you guys score another goal, he goes, I'm going to knock somebody out. I, and he pointed to the bench. And I remember Kevin Stevens looked around and he told me the story. And I remember Brownie told me the story. He looked at Brownie. He goes, what do you want me to do? Mario's giving me tap-ins. He goes, I don't care, missed. And I think the game ended up six to one or six to two. <laughs> and I think there was still 20 minutes left in the game. So they didn't <laughs> score a goal. So we, that was one of the stories where we were having uh, pregame. Well, Dave's one of the few guys. I could see him striking the fear oh, of yeah. God into everyone because he was an absolute devastating fighter. Yeah, I I, I tell the story as my, uh, my first training camp when we were playing in uh, Minot, Minnesota, playing the North Stars when they were in the league and there was a guy on the other team and he was just a crazy, I mean, he played junior hockey where I played. He was nuts. He was crazy. He had these pointy teeth. And I think he, I think he kicked some ref in the, in the IHL years before now, but he was on a trial with Minnesota and he was skating around and I don't know, I was stretching. He was looking at me and he had his pointy teeth. It was like, he looked like Freddy Krueger, right? He was going to kill me. Right. And I, I got to tell you, I, 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 I usually don't get scared, but I was like, man, I'm scared. I'm a 19 year old kid. Well, the first shift of the game, Dave Brown beat the living hell of this guy, broke his orbit bone. The guy was out of the game. You should have seen my next shift. I was sticking guys. I was elbowing guys. I was in front of the net. It was like, you know, I, I just I just remember that. That's how Dave Brown meant to me. He was just, he made everybody play freer. I'll tell you that. Who were some of the guys talk that you looked up to, especially in your the beginning of your career in Philly? Yeah, you know what? I was really lucky, Frank, and you know those guys. Like the old Flyer guys, when I first got to 84, 85, a lot of those guys were retired. And, uh, you, know, it, you know, a lot of guys still live in the area, but they were living around the area. They were, they were visible guys. Came around the rink a lot. And, they, um, you know, like uh, um, Bob, well, obviously Bob Clark was our gentleman. But Billy Barber, uh, the Hound, uh, to go to dinner with him. Oris Kendrick, you know, uh, Joe Watson. They come to the rink and then we'd all go to dinner. Like, like me and myself, Peter Zezel would sit with the six guys for dinner. Um, they'd have them out at our house. You know, I went to Billy Barber's house for dinner a lot. Um, Paul Holmgren, another guy who was friend, very friendly with his wife, uh, Doreen, who, who, uh, who was great to see the other night. Um, they almost, they almost like were handing the baton to you. And obviously they had the, they had the ultimate two Stanley cups, but they just wanted us to keep that tradition. And, um, I mean, we, we stayed there in the summer. Like, I mean, we used to hang out. We were played softball games there. We golfed together. So I, I really credit, and, and I, I didn't have a lot of time, and I think I said in my speech, those guys were impactful for me getting inducted, inducted to the Hall of Fame as those guys, uh, those that 74, 75 team. Mm. So this is my last question, and I know it's a tough one to answer, but and we'll play a little rapid fire next. You've yeah. played way more games in Philly in a Flyer uniform, but your name is on the cup three times as a Penguin. When someone says to you, what's home? Philly or Pittsburgh, 
Is your answer Pittsburgh? Yeah, that, you know what? It's funny. I, I like I said, you know, ever you know, I love Philly, and but I still get Pittsburgh sucks. You suck, right? They're so passionate. Um, I it was a total of six, seven years of Pittsburgh total with being a coach and a player, and I've won three cups. I mean, how can you not love that city? How can you not love going back there? Or, or, and I live there. My son's born, you know, uh, lived there with my, with my ex-wife now. So how can you not love it? And how can you not love it? It's, I, I don't have, a, I don't, honestly can't pick a side. I really don't. I, I feel I can cross the border there and the state lines. And I think, uh, well, I shouldn't say the same state when I talk about the city lines um, and kind of be, got a piece of both, you know, both teams. I know people don't want to hear that, but that's really the answer. Um, uh, it's it's both teams for sure. Awesome. Uh, Rick, we always like to end with rapid fire. The only rule, and even though Bill Guerin didn't like it, he still answered. You have to answer every question. All right. Oh, Billy didn't like any, some questions. No, well, he did. Well, we put, we made some tough ones for him. He still answered though. So, all right. For, first one, when you get traded to Billy, what was the biggest difference between Paul Holmgren as a coach and Scotty Bowman as a coach? So great question. Scotty Bowman, very methodical, um, unreal bench coach. Uh, didn't really talk a lot to you as an individual. Homer was more of a father figure, talked to you as, an, as you know, as a, almost like a father's son, where Scotty was more distant, but more of a savant genius type of coach. Who was the power for that you idolized growing up? Great question. Well, I used to, I lived in Toronto a lot. I love Tiger Woods or Tiger Woods. Uh, Tiger Williams. Tiger Woods. I, I'm in two. Uh, Tiger Williams, um, Clark Gillies. You know, uh, Bobby Nystrom. You know, those guys were really uh, guys that I really respected. Why did you never ride your stick after a goal then? Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I. That's something I'm. I can't. That's not my blood. I. Ty Dome is a close friend of mine, and he did it. And Mark Messier said, don't ever do that again. He did it, uh, and, and Ty never did it again. But I, I, that's not my personality. Okay, now this one's going to be tough because you played with two of them. Gretzky or Lemieux? Who's better? Yeah. I've been asked that question. 1A, 1B. Take your pick. No, no, you got to answer it. Yeah, you got to answer. No, I don't that, – that's too hard. Two good of friends, and they I, – I know it's – I don't, I don't want to be the first guy on your show not to answer, but that's a tough one. Okay, how about this? What was the biggest difference that those two had that made them great? Um, Wayne's, well, both have great vision, but Wayne's vision was incredible. Mario's ta um, physical talent at being 6'6", six, six, the weight of, he, how graceful he was as a 6'6 six, six player. So uh, to me, it's the vision of Wayne and just the skill set of Mario. In your heyday, and you know Frank talked about, it, he had a lot of penalty minutes. Who did you like fighting? Uh, probably Scott Stevens. Ooh, how come? Because it, 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 there, there was no stage. There was no, uh, you know, we go. We're gonna. It was all pure emotion. It, it happened because it happened, and he was the same way. You know, we didn't fight for the sake of fighting. We fought because there was a reason to fight whether he cross-checked me in the back or I might have stuck him from behind or something that happened, or both teams weren't going well, um, that's how it's done. I love those type of fights, when it's just pure emotion. When it's staged and things like that, 
Um, I have a tough time with that. I read, but the pure emotion of it, and he was with the same kind of like me. He enjoyed it when it came to that. You mentioned Dave Brown. Were you yeah. ever involved in a game where you were nervous watching two other guys fight? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was never like nervous, but I, I remember watching uh, Craig Berube fight Bob Probert three times in, in a weekend. Um, in the third fight, I was, you know, I was, I was nervous. And Chief was one of my best friends. I was, say, I was nervous. I just was, yeah, I was just a little bit, man. I hope Proby doesn't land a punch and knock him out. So, yeah, was I nervous for that? Yes. And uh, Jason Strudwick has a great line. He told me uh, he hated fighting guys when he knew the best outcome would be a draw. So, um, <laughs> he, he didn't, was there anybody that you were like, damn, my best outcome here is a draw? Yeah, there's a lot of guys where you know that you've got your hands full, but. The one thing that, and I'm not trying to say arrogant, like I, I was never really scared because I, I, I was strong enough. I didn't have to punch, but I knew I could protect myself. That was one thing I was good at. And if I was going to fight, you know, let my hands go, yeah, I, I'd do that. But there were some times when I wasn't ready or I was tired, I knew I could protect myself. So I was never really in a, in a point, point where, you know, it's going to be a draw. I had a lot of draws, but to me, because that's because I was strong enough to, to kind of be good defensive fighter. And lastly, I saw Anson Carter with a funny chirp about uh, seeing better hands on a clock yesterday. So if if the TNT panel gets five shots on a shooter tutor in the corner, who's hitting it the, with the who's the best of you four? And then conversely, who's the worst? Um, I'm still listen. I'd still put money on myself. AC's, you know, I, I don't think AC's been playing much hockey. I, maybe AC I, and Wayne. You know, Wayne Harley picks up a stick. We know who's fit, uh, busy. <laughs> Actually, Biz and Liam would be fighting it out. That's, uh, you know, I, I hate to hate to tell you that, but uh, I think me and AC, I, 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 ahead of the great one. I really huh. do. I have one last one, talk. So yeah, you no have problem. you, Mario, and Wayne, and you need a fourth person to complete your foursome in golf. Who are you calling and who's winning? I'm going to probably pick Paul Coffey because um, – if we're partners, he's pretty good at it. He's got great, great one-liners, good jabs, and he's, he's not scared to jab those two guys. Because when you play golf, I don't want a guy's going to be intimidated by Wayne and Mario, right? So I'm taking Paul because he wouldn't be intimidated, and he's really sarcastic. And he's a pretty good golfer when the money's on the line. And so who's winning? Uh, well, if we get enough shots, well, Mario's uh, – if we get enough shots, we can, we can hang in there. But if it's just – if there's no handicap involved, we get killed by that. Because Mario alone on his own ball would beat all three of us. <laughs> there you go. Is who was the and one last one I lied. Yeah, yeah. Of all those guys, you you know, you guys are ultra competitive. Did you have one teammate over the years that was just like it was almost comical how competitive he was at everything? Oh uh, yeah. There's a lot of guys. I would say Kevin Stevens is like very competitive in any anything you do, whether it's playing cards, whether it's a three a, a three on three on practice. You know, whether it's, you know, he's like, you know, the luggage is back in the day, luggage is coming out of the carousel. He's the first guy. Okay. You know, listen, uh, you know, who's, whose bag comes out here for 20 bucks. Like he's very competitive guy. And um, he's just one of those guys that constantly wants to, he wants to just be involved in, in any competition. You know, if, if you told him that, you know, the, the Dallas Cowboys were the best team, he's coming right back to the Patriots and he's going to give you a half an hour dissertation on why the Patriots are number one. So he's just, he knows everything about sports. So I would say Kevin Stevens. 
Awesome. Uh, Rick, so much. Appreciate this, man. I, and, and no word of a lie, honestly, it's a huge, I love power forwards in the eighties. And, uh, uh, my brother and I, you were, you were my brother is one of his favorite players of all time. He wanted me to say hello to you. He was a huge fan of, of Rick talking. Not many guys could have uh, 200 PIMS and 40 plus goals consistently. Yeah. I was lucky enough to play some great players, but, uh, those were the fun days. I mean, that was fun. Obviously the players nowadays, I mean, their skill set's incredible and, you know, it's not so much, uh, that style, but I still think in the playoffs, you still have to have that, those type of guys to win. And I, that's why, you know, I, I, that Calgary team, I don't mind that team. If, if they get in, they're really good in the playoff team because the, they're built that way. Rick, I'm glad to have you on our side in the media, but um, hope you get a shot and, and get back behind the bench as soon as you want to. So thanks so much. I appreciate for that, Frank. Thank you so much. Appreciate yeah. that. Rick Tockett, what an absolute beauty of a guy, Frank. Um, it was funny. My favorite we were was about the Dave Brown story. Just, you know, don't ever yeah. do that again. Dude. <laughs> well, I never do that again. But oh, like, what do just, you mean? Like, these were tap-ins from Gretz. Like, like what am I supposed to do? Don't care. Great... Doesn't matter. Don't ever do it again. <laughs> well, that story and the fact when Rick's a young rookie in Minnesota, and all of a sudden his next shift, he's, he's like the biggest guy in the ice because Dave just took out their tough guy. Oh, Unreal. I love it. But Dave, well, you saw I, you saw Dave in Philly. I saw Dave in Edmonton. I he, and the funny part about Dave Brown, he would walk around with his glasses on. And he looked like a professor. He is the nicest human being you'd ever run into. We got honestly. I he's a scout. Um, he had scouted for the flyers for the longest time. I can't tell you how many rinks I've run into Dave Brown. And obviously he played before my time, but like, I was like, how this guy was the boogeyman. Like this guy was who everyone was afraid of. It was like, he's, he's a sweetheart, a teddy bear of a human being. Yeah, well, the story about him and Edmonton after he fought Stu Grimson the first time, and, and Grimson got the better of him in, in Calgary, but then Grimson was a young guy, and he made some comments about how he's the new champ. Well, uh, Dwayne Mandruzak, who was a longtime trainer for the uh, um, the Elks, uh, the Eskimos, and then um, the uh, the Orders trainers, Dave Brown had greased up his, he sprayed his jersey. He got a jersey with massive, it was so tight, Frank, like they had, everybody had to pull it on, and then he put all that, like that sprayed the stick'em stuff, the non stick him so you couldn't touch it and that was the next game when he broke grimson's face like the thing about dave was when he got mad he was scary mm, the grim reaper and you mentioned professor for dave brown uh the grim reaper also a lawyer uh, it's yeah. funny how that all worked out it is. Uh, that was a great pod with uh, Rick Tockett, Frank. It'll be an interesting week. We got a lot of teams to get to on Monday. I'm looking forward to Monday's pod already because there's lots of teams to discuss. The Montreal Canadiens by then might have the worst start in franchise history. That's 100 years. We'll get to it's all of that. Have a great franchise. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. 
All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.